How does a holy, just God have a loving relationship with sinful people like us? Lawbreakers have to be punished, right? Or else God is not a just God. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to Ephesians 1, we're going to pick up the... uh, Narrative at verse 7. Uh, Marin and I uh, were gone last week. We had a wedding in Dallas outside when it was 97 degrees and humid. Uh, yes, interesting. Uh, we saw the Schaefers who send their love and affection to you all. And then we went to uh, Banff, Canada, where it was 40 to 60 degrees, which is a whole lot nicer for a business conference. So it's good to be back in town. Thanks for the cool weather. Uh, it was a lot hotter when we left, so it's good. Let's review a little bit. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written about 64, 63 AD. It was probably a circular letter. It was one written primarily to the church at Ephesus, but it was circulated and read by all seven churches that are listed in the book of Revelation, which are in the eastern, the western area of the uh, uh, Turkish peninsula, the Anatolian peninsula, modern-day Turkey. So this letter was read by multiple churches. This letter, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, was written when Paul was in prison. He was in prison twice. This was his first imprisonment, probably 60 to 62, for the gospel. And he read, he wrote three, four letters while he was imprisoned by Rome, waiting for trial. Even though his body was in chains, when you read the book of Ephesians, it's pretty clear his spirit was in heaven. Unlike most of Paul's epistles, This was not a personal letter. A lot of Paul's letters were personal letters, and they were written to solve specific problems in specific churches. They were written to individuals. This is not one of those. There wasn't a specific problem at the church at Ephesus that this letter was written to solve. It wasn't a personal letter. It wasn't a theological treatise like the book of Romans with very, very carefully reasoned arguments. Ephesians really is a letter of praise, the letter of praise to God for all the blessings that he has bestowed on all of the people that he has chosen and adopted for his forever family. So Ephesians really moves us from seeing life from an earthly perspective with all of the problems that we face to seeing life from an eternal point of view. So Paul's mind is in the heavens, even though his body is in prison, which is an extraordinarily good model for us because many times our circumstances are less than optimal, shall we say. And Paul is teaching us through the power of the Holy Spirit how to see life from an eternal point of view. So this book really exalts and praises and glorifies God as the source of all our blessings. And it also, interestingly enough, reveals God's eternal purpose, both in time and for all eternity. So in the opening verses of verse 1, we talked about this two weeks ago, Paul states that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which is an incredible statement. Every spiritual blessing, 
in the heavenly places. And then he unpacks those blessings one by one. And remember last week, we, or two weeks ago, we said that all three members of the Trinity are involved in the blessings that we as believers experience. In verses 3 to 6, we talked about two weeks ago, the work of our Heavenly Father. Our blessing is election. He chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. He knew your name. You were planned. No accidents in God's kingdom. In verse 7 to 12, we see the work of Jesus the Son, and His blessing for us is redemption. Jesus saved us sacrificially through His death on our behalf. And then in verse 13 to 14, we have the work of the Holy Spirit, and the blessing of the Holy Spirit is protection. The Holy Spirit secures those blessings from the Father and the Son. So two weeks ago, we talked about the blessing of the Father. We talked about divine election, how He chose us. Today, Lord willing, we're going to be reviewing the blessings from Jesus the Son, redemption, and the blessings from God the Holy Spirit, uh, protection and security. So let's open the narrative, if you will, turn to chapter 1 of Ephesians, and let's begin at verse 7. In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us, in all wisdom and insight. Here's the principle. Our greatest need and God's greatest gift is forgiveness, which became ours when Jesus paid the legal penalty for our crimes by dying in our place. Our greatest need and God's greatest gift is forgiveness, which became ours when Jesus paid the legal penalty for our crimes by dying in our place. Redemption was a very, very common word in the Roman Empire, and it had nothing to do with religion. It was a very common economic term. Redemption meant buying back and setting free from slavery by paying a ransom price. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were probably five million slaves. It was a very, very common fact of life. It was as horrible then as it was now, but there were very, very many places where slaves were bought and sold. So this term, redemption, was a very common term in that culture. Here's how it applies to us. We have a problem. All humans have broken God's law, which the Bible calls sin. And the Bible says that the consequences of sin is death, which is separation from God. Sinful human beings, that's all of us, are separated from God because God is holy and just, and He cannot tolerate wickedness of any kind. So sinful people who are separated from God are enslaved to sin and Satan. However, God, the God of the Bible, is not only perfectly just, He's also completely loving. He hates sin, and amazingly, He loves sinful people. So there's a big problem. How does a holy, just God have a loving relationship with sinful people like us? Lawbreakers have to be punished, right? or else God is not a just God. So there's only two options. Either each sinner pays for their own sin or their own crime, or someone else pays for their sins. Now, if we paid for our own sins, that would take an eternity in hell to pay for them. That's how serious sin is in God's sight. However, since God loves sinful people, He sent His perfect Son, Jesus, to pay for our sins Himself. And when Jesus died on the cross in our place, he experienced God's wrath 
righteous wrath against sin upon himself. So Jesus literally took our sin and gave us his righteousness. So God judged Jesus and forgave us. Jesus paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And when we trust in Christ's payment for our sins, we literally receive Christ's righteousness in our spiritual bank account and therefore God's forgiveness. Now, forgiveness means to loose, to release, to let go, to dismiss, to set aside. Forgiveness is a releasing or a dismissing of something. And trespass, Jesus said, God says here, forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespass means an offense. It means crossing a boundary. It means a misstep. When someone trespasses on your property, it means they've crossed a boundary that they should not have crossed, correct? That's the same thing. We've crossed God's moral boundaries. So when God forgives us, he sets aside, he dismisses the penalty of our sin. He lets it go. However, forgiveness always requires a price. And the price to be paid for forgiveness is a capital offense. Sin is a capital offense, and so that price to be paid is always in blood. And that's why Jesus died. We deserve to die for our own sin. But since Jesus died in our place, God can let us go free. God can dismiss that. And you say, okay, Brad, that's pretty theological. Let me apply it. Have you ever had to forgive anyone? Did you like it? When you say I forgive you to someone, what you're really saying is I will no longer pursue justice against you. I am going to dismiss, let go of my right to pursue justice. It also means that I am going to bear the consequences of your sin myself. You have sinned against me and hurt me, and I am bleeding and broken because of your sin, and I am willing to release you from the justice of retribution, which you deserve, and I am willing to bear that pain myself. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is very, very expensive. But Jesus loves us enough to forgive us because he bore the consequences of our sin himself. And since we've been forgiven by God, God calls us to forgive each other from the heart. Now, in case you didn't know this, and I'm sure you all do, the only thing that will keep you in long-term relationships with people is a willingness to forgive. Because people will sin against you, and you will sin against them. Amen? Forgiveness, that dismissing, that letting go, is what keeps long-term relationships intact. So Jesus not only sets us free from slavery to sin by His grace, He restores us to useful service. Someone enslaved to sin is not useful to God. Right? Kind of like a pawn shop. I, I don't know that how many of you ever pawned anything. When you pawn something, you go to the pawn shop, you need liquid cash, and you give them something of valuable, something of value, and that's collateral for the loan. 
and they loan you liquid cash and that item that you have pawned is, is collateral. However, when that item is sitting in the pawn shop on the shelf as collateral, it's not doing what it was designed to do. It's just sitting there, whatever it was. It could be a drill, could be whatever it happens to be. When you pay back the loan, you get your item out of pawn. Some of you are looking at me and like, I have never been in a pawn shop in my life, Brad. Count your blessings. A pawn shop is a poor man's bank. That's reality. When you pay back the loan, you redeem the item and you restore it to usefulness. You can now use that drill set and make it work again. When God redeemed us from the slave market of sin, he doesn't just pay the sin debt, he restores us to service. He restores us to useful service. And God has work for all of us to do. Ray Steadman says that he prefers the word liberation to the word redemption. Liberation from sin or redemption from sin, a couple things we need to know. Number one, it's not instant. It takes place over time and it involves three stages. You want to be liberated from sin at the moment of salvation when you trust Christ to forgive your sins, you are set free from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Because death means separation. You know, at physical death, our bodies are separated from our spirits. Our bodies go into the ground. Our spirits go instantly to meet God. Spiritual death occurs when those who refuse Christ's payment for their sins pay for their own sins themselves and are separated from God for all eternity. Now, when we trust Christ to forgive us our sins, God declares us not guilty. And he gives us a new legal standing. He declares us righteous. This is a legal transaction. At the moment of salvation, God says, you are no longer guilty. You are righteous because you have received Christ's righteousness and he took your sins. It's like a judge who pronounces you not guilty because someone else has already paid the penalty you owe under the law. It doesn't happen in most courts of law. Most of the time, you do the crime, you do the time. In God's kingdom, the Father is the judge, Jesus the Son is our advocate, who's already paid the penalty for our sins, so God the Father can pronounce us not guilty. That we call justification. The second step of this liberation or this redemption is every day Christians are progressively being set free from the power of sin. All of you who are Christians have already been set free from the penalty of sin. You're now justified. You're legally righteous before God. But we still live with sin every day because we live in a broken planet. We call that second step sanctification, where every day God the Holy Spirit shapes us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Every day sin should have less and less power over us, and every day Jesus should have more and more power in us and through us. Michelangelo, the great sculptor, once said, quote, The sculpture is already complete within the marble block. Before I start my work, it's already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. He could see the sculpture inside the marble block. He just had to sculpt away all the superfluous material. Now, there is a divine sculpture at work in your life, and it's called the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, every day is chiseling away 
in your life everything that is not Jesus. And some of us look and go, man, ooh, this hurts. Can you put the chisel away for a while? No, because God is relentless about shaping you into the image of his son. He wants us to be like Jesus, his son. And this process is painful, and this process will go on every day of your life. So if you want to know why, why stuff is happening to you, why your circumstances are what you are, why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, all of it is designed by God to shape us into his image. Romans 8, 28 and 29. The goal is to make us like Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit has finished the sculpture here on earth, you know what happens? You go be with him in heaven. So thirdly, we have justification, sanctification. When we physically die, we will be set free from the presence of sin. So we've been set free from the penalty of sin at the moment of salvation. Every day that, the Holy, that we're alive, the Holy Spirit is setting us free from the power of sin, so sin has less power over us. We still have to live with the presence of it. When we die and we go to heaven, we're set free from the presence of sin. We call that glorification. When we see God face to face, there is no sin in God's presence. And we'll be transformed and made exactly like Jesus in our character and conduct. 1 John 3, 2 says... We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is face to face. Now, this is going to occur, Paul says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Have you ever figured out that God is not stingy? God is not cheap. God is a lavish God. His grace is like the waves of the ocean. They keep coming and coming and coming. Someone once said, well, the scripture says, God gives us grace according to his riches, not out of his riches. Someone once said, if you go to a multimillionaire and you ask them for a contribution to a worthy cause, and she gives you $100, she has given out of her riches. But if she hands you a signed blank check and says, Fill it out with whatever you need. She has given according to her riches. You get the difference? $100 is out of your riches. A signed blank check is according to riches. When God sacrificed his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin, for our crimes, he gave according to his riches. There is no limit to God's grace. We sang a song today, what? Grace, grace. God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. How much? All our sin. There is no sin that the grace of God cannot forgive. We experience God's forgiveness, of course, when we turn away from sin and turn to God. The Bible calls that repentance. And God has lavished us with his grace in all wisdom and insight. It means that it's based on his infinite wisdom. I do not understand why God would choose to love us. When I look in the mirror, I'm going, God, I don't know why you bother. Honestly. But it doesn't matter that I understand. What does is that he understands. We are going to spend all of eternity experiencing more and more and more of God's grace 
forever and ever and ever. We will never get to the end of the grace of God. That's why we call it amazing, incomprehensible. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. By the way, when we Ephesians is one of the densest books in the Bible. Every word has so much meaning. As we mentioned two weeks ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 38 messages in chapter 1. Very, very dense. So here's the principle for verse 9 and 10. God's eternal purpose is to unite the entire creation under the authority of King Jesus. God's eternal purpose is to unite the entire creation under the authority of King Jesus. The Holy Spirit calls this a mystery. He made known to us the mystery of His will. Mystery refers to a truth that was previously not known, but has now been revealed by divine revelation. It's a divine secret that we can't discover by human diligence or intelligence. God's mysteries can only be discovered by divine disclosure. You know, some things we can know about God just by watching His creation. You can see His power, His infinite knowledge, His divine presence. You can look at the physical universe and you can infer some things about God. What cannot be discovered about God through His creation is His love and His desire to have a relationship with sinful people. That had to be revealed through His Word, the Bible. And Scripture says, God revealed His plans to us according to His kind intention, which means it was God's good pleasure that caused Him to reveal His future plans to us, nothing we have done. And His future plans involve an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Administration literally means dispensation, arrangement, management. So when they talk about that God has an administration, it refers to the management of the household. You all have households and you manage the household, right? God has a universe and he manages the universe. A little difference in scale, but it still requires management. And you say, well, how does God manage the universe? Well, it says here, according to the fullness of the times. And the Greek word for times here is kairos, K-I-I-R-O-S. And it refers to a particular or unique times or seasons. It doesn't refer to the passage of time. That's the Greek word chronos. So kairos refers to time in the sense that you would say it's springtime, right? Chronos refers to clock time. It's 12 o'clock. So they're both talking about time. One is seasonal time and one is clock time. This one is seasonal time. God does everything, have you noticed, in the fullness of time. It says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem when? in the fullness of time. In the fullness of whose time? God's time, right? Not our time. Paul here is referring, really, to God's planned arrangements for the end of human history. Now, contrary to contemporary society, the Bible clearly teaches us that history has purpose. It has a beginning and it has an end. There is meaning and purpose to human history, and God has a plan for every single bit of it, And now we're talking about what's God's plan for the culmination of human history. And it's referred to in these words, the summing up of all things in Christ. That's the whole point of all of history, the summing up of all things in Christ. 
And this word summing up literally means to gather up into one. The NIV translates this verse as to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Headship refers to authority, to rule. So the mystery that was revealed to Paul by the Holy Spirit is that it was God's intention to bring glory to himself by uniting the entire creation under the rule of Christ. Now, as you look around the world today, would you say that the world today is united under the rule of Christ? I hope you would not say that's the case, because if that's the case, we got a mess. Sin and Satan today rule over rebellious people who refuse Christ's redemption and reject his rule. And most people refuse Christ's redemption and reject his rule. As Pastor Roger talked about this morning, before the fall of mankind, Satan had led a rebellion in heaven because he didn't want to serve God. He wanted the status of God. And of course, then Satan successfully enticed Adam and Eve to join him in his mutiny against God. And Genesis 3 says that God pronounced a curse on creation. The entire created order is cursed, and the law of entropy reveals an increasing degree of disorder, futility, chaos, corruption, and death. Romans 8 tells us, for the creation, he's not just talking about us, he's talking about the physical world, the physical universe, was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him, God the Father, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And we act surprised that climate changes. Well, duh. We're in a fallen world. This is not home. This is not paradise. This place is decaying. Scripture tells us that. Futility, by the way, means emptiness, uselessness, purposelessness. The creation is not now fulfilling the purpose for which God created it. The entire creation is dying. You know why? Sin has separated us from the source of life. God is the source of life. If you're separated from the source of life, you're going to die. Yes? Well, that's what sin does. It separates us from God, which is the source of life, Creator God. You know, when you look around today, everybody seems to be fighting someone about something. Why should that surprise us? They're sinners like we are. Do you think they're going to behave in godly fashion if they're not connected with God, if they don't have God the Holy Spirit in them? They're going to behave badly. We who know Jesus behave badly from time to time, right? So don't be surprised that things seem to be falling apart. They are falling apart, right? The creation was never designed to operate independently of the Creator. So at the end of this present age, this age of time, when everyone has submitted to Christ, the curse that created the chaos and corruption of our current creation is going to be reversed. And the creation will be restored to God's original purpose. You know, the reality is we really have no idea what life in Eden was like. We have no clue what the world was like before sin. Other than that, we know that this current creation is decaying at a rapid pace. But 
The day will come, Philippians 2.10 tells us, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So at the end of this age, King Jesus is going to rule over everything and everyone. Scripture tells us that there are people who will choose to bow today. They've chosen to submit their lives to Christ. They will live forever with Jesus in heaven. But if you notice what Philippians 2 says, it says every knee will bow. Many of those are not bowing voluntarily. They're not choosing to bow. They're forced to bow. Because Jesus Christ is king, whether you acknowledge it or not. And those people who rebel against his authority are choosing to spend eternity separated from him in hell. And everyone in hell chose to be there. It's a choice. So here's a question. Pretty basic one. If you're going to bow anyway, why not just choose to bow now? Your life works a lot better when you're connected in a proper relationship with Jesus Christ the King. I've been on both sides of this equation. I tell you it's much, 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 much better to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ than to rebel against Him. And I have been on both sides of that equation, and so have you. Right? Bow now. Verse 11. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Here's the principle. Jesus is our inheritance and our source for everything. And we are His inheritance, whom He chooses and uses to fulfill His plan for planet Earth. Jesus is our inheritance and our source for everything. And we are his inheritance, whom he chooses and uses to fulfill his plan for planet Earth. Now, the Greek word translated inheritance here means chosen. It literally means being appointed or obtained by lot. When Joshua conquered the land of Canaan, God says, I want you to distribute this land by lot to all the children of Israel, which means you're going to divide the land into parcels and that parcel is going to be their inheritance. And of course, you would build a homestead on that, and that homestead, that land, would pass from generation to generation to generation. It was their inheritance. And God has also chosen us, not by chance, but by divine purpose. Each of you has an inheritance. You are wealthy beyond your comprehension, and our inheritance is not by accident. Matter of fact, it's so certain it's spoken of as in the past tense, have already obtained the inheritance. Paul says the we who have been the first to believe, he seems to imply Jewish believers. And in verse 13, he says, you also, he's talking about Gentile believers. Now, in chapter 2, we're going to discover one of the great mysteries of God's plan is that Jews and Gentiles become one in Christ, in the church. And that was not known before then. The word inheritance here seems to have a double meaning. For the people whom Jesus redeemed, Jesus himself is their inheritance. On the other hand, those same redeemed people, you and I, we are Christ's inheritance. Now when you think of an inheritance, what we think of is something that's important and valuable. 
it's treasure, right? You think of an inheritance as something that you value. It's a treasure that provides for the needs of the beneficiaries. When you think of an inheritance, you think if somebody's going to add something to my life that's going to be really beneficial to me, hopefully it's going to help provide for my needs. And that's exactly correct. Jesus Christ is our priceless treasure. He's the inheritance. He's the source of our life. And we, on the other hand, are also Christ's inheritance in the sense that we are his body, right? We're his eyes, we're his ears, we're his hands, we're his feet. Jesus is in heaven, but you're his body. He uses you to accomplish his purposes on planet Earth. So Jesus is our treasure, and we are his treasure. Now, the ultimate experience of that inheritance is going to be when we get face-to-face with God in heaven. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. Boy, we could spend months on that verse. Today, our knowledge of anything is partial. It's incomplete. It's very, very limited. How many of you have ever said, I do not understand why this is occurring? I say that almost every day. I don't, I don't get it because our knowledge is so limited. We are stuck in space and time. Events occur which seem to make no sense to us. Why did so-and-so die? Why did so-and-so get sick? Why did this event happen? Why did this catastrophe happen? Why now? Why not five years from now? Why not ten years ago? The reality is, is we in this life only understand a very limited amount. However, the day is coming when we will know fully because then we will see face to face, not in a mirror dimly. So stand fast in your faith. The day will come when you will see fully. In the meanwhile, Scripture says, we walk by faith, not by sight. So we don't have to understand fully because we understand that our Heavenly Father does understand fully. We have been predestined according to His purpose, which means we've been called out beforehand. We've been selected in advance. Before God created anything, we mentioned two weeks ago that God purposed and called us out by name. And he also set aside an eternal inheritance for you in heaven before he chose you. And God does everything by design because he's the one who it says here works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Counsel here means to deliberate and to plan. What it says is that God worked out a perfect plan after deliberating on the best course of action in order to accomplish his eternal purposes. And we have a world that does not understand why things are happening the way they they are happening. And you know what they say? If I were God, I would do this and this and this and this. And if we're wise, we say, fortunately, you are not God. Fortunately, we are not God because our knowledge is extremely limited, and God works out everything according to the counsel of his will. It says there's nothing in this world that is not subject to the sovereignty of God. Nothing. And I know this next week, some of us are going to experience some things where that is going to be tested. 
because we're going to have experiences this week, and some of us are in the middle of those experiences now where we're saying, God, I really hope you know what you're doing. Because I don't get it. Precisely. That's because we're not God. And He is. Every single thing in the universe have divine purpose and divine timing. There are no accidents in God's kingdom. There is not a nanoparticle, a subatomic particle that moves in the universe without the will of God. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. We serve a God that is not only all-powerful, but all-loving. Anytime you have a difficult circumstance you don't understand, look at it through the lens of the cross. If you ever doubt that Jesus loves you by allowing you to experience what you're going through, look at it through the lens of the cross. Never, ever doubt his love. God's ultimate purpose is to act according to the praise of his glory. God chose us, redeemed us, and sealed us for the praise of his glory because the purpose of the creature is to praise the creator. You can write that one down. The purpose of the creature is to praise the creator. When people exalt and praise the creator, they're fulfilling the purpose for which they were created in the first place. When people praise themselves instead of the creator, they're perverting the purpose for which they were created because sin always exalts self, not God. Adam and Eve were the first to get trapped in that, and we were born with our sin nature. You know, we live in a world that is largely separated from God. And one of the curses of that is you wind up with futility and meaninglessness and an empty soul. And people pursue all sorts of things trying to find meaning apart from God. It's a fruitless search. All you need to do is read the book of Ecclesiastes if you want to find out the richest king in Israel, Solomon, and read all the things he tried to do to satisfy his soul apart from submission to God. And he wound up saying at the end of the day, it's all vanity, the breath, meaninglessness. Only Jesus will satisfy your soul. Verse 13. In him you also, after having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed, underline that word, in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, underline that word, of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Here's the principle. The indwelling Holy Spirit is proof that we belong to God. And he guarantees that our future inheritance in heaven is secure. The indwelling Holy Spirit is proof that we belong to God. And he guarantees that our future inheritance in heaven is secure. Now, the Holy Spirit is the permanent possession of every single one who believes in Jesus Christ. John 14, 16 says, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may be with you, how long? Forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Romans 8, 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of God... He does not belong to him. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and asked him to forgive your sins, 
God, the Holy Spirit, came in at the moment of salvation and takes up residence in you. So you have Almighty God living in you to give you guidance and direction and truth and reveal what He needs you to know. And the Holy Spirit is given to believers as two things. One, a seal. Two, a pledge. Now, a seal indicates a number of things. The first thing a seal indicates is security. Remember when Jesus died, he was buried, and it says the Roman guards sealed the tomb so no one could steal his body. What they did is they roped off the tomb, like law enforcement, as they do with, you know, we have yellow tape. You go around a crime scene, they got the yellow tape, etc. They seal it off. And what they did is they brought these two ropes together at the tomb, and they put a wax ball on the end of the ropes, and they put a Roman, official Roman insignia over that rope. If anyone messed with that seal or that rope, they would face Roman justice. And that was often capital crime. So official documents like letters and contracts and things like that, what they would do is they would, you know, we lick the envelope to seal it. They would fold the envelope. They would get a blob of wax. They would put the blob of wax where you lick, right? And they would take a, a ring that had an insignia, and they would press the ring in the wax. And that was an official signia. It was an official mark that says, I am the owner of this letter, and I put my, sig my insignia on this wax. If you mess with that wax, you're in trouble. If the seal was broken, the document had been opened, and the contents are no longer, of course, verified as being authentic. When you came to faith in Christ, God himself sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, there are 59 references to the Holy Spirit in this book. Six chapters, 59 references. About a fourth of the total references to the Holy Spirit in the entire New Testament are in the book of Ephesians. So the Holy Spirit was given to us, among other things, as a guarantee of, their, of our eternal security. Our salvation is secure because no one can break God's seal and steal you out of his hands. Jesus is speaking to us in John 10, 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Your salvation is guaranteed by Jesus Christ himself. So a seal is security. Secondly, a seal is authentic. It's authenticity. A seal makes something official or authentic. I remember years ago requesting my college transcripts. And when you get your college transcripts, they have a seal, right? I've seen a number of marriage certificates, birth certificates, death certificates, and they're stamped, right? An official stamp. Sometimes they're even embossed. You can feel the, the raised print where they emboss them. It demonstrates their authenticity. When you seal a package, the seal not only guarantees ownership, who owns the package, it also guarantees the contents, right? So the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life assures us that our salvation is authentic and we really do belong to God. When you read God's Word, have you ever read God's Word and the Holy Spirit just turned the floodlight on and went, that is for you, right? Does that ever happen to you? You want proof that you belong to God? That's the Holy Spirit going, shh, you need to do something with that. You need to obey that. We've all had that experience. When the Holy Spirit prompts you like that, number one, obey it. But number two, be comforted. That's demonstration that God the Holy Spirit lives in you and that you really do belong to Jesus. 
So a seal not only covers security and authenticity, it's also cover ownership. A seal is like a brand mark. I know most of us haven't been around cattle, but we brand cattle. Marin and I just spent a lot of time in airports. A seal is like a luggage tag. You ever put your luggage, put a tag on luggage, and then you kiss it goodbye? <laughs> and you hope that it's going to make its way to the airport. You know, the right airport. Right? I mean, that's part of the... Now, when you think about it, with all due respect, I'm looking at Tracy over here. Airports deal with an unbelievable amount of luggage. So the bulk of the time, if you just look at the numbers, they do a pretty good job. Most of the time, the luggage shows up where it is. But you put a luggage tag on something because it shows who owns it and it shows where it's supposed to go. So God's Holy Spirit is God's mark on us that demonstrates that we have been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ and we belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not you own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. See, when you get to heaven, the seal of the indwelling Holy Spirit is your luggage tag that identifies you as having belonged to Christ, and heaven is your home. And you're at the right location. Right? The last thing a seal indicates is authority. Anytime you seal something, it really is the full authority of the one who impressed that seal on the document. Kings and official documents are generally were routinely sealed for government affairs. If anyone tampered with the seal, it was an offense against the king, could be a capital offense. Not only is the Holy Spirit a seal, verse 14 says, the Holy Spirit is the one who is given as a pledge for our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now, the Greek word for pledge is arabon, A-R-R-A-B-O-N. It means deposit. It means earnest money. It means guarantee. It means down payment. So the Holy Spirit is a down payment. In commercial terms, the arabon in Greek, it was part of the purchase price that was paid in advance to guarantee that the rest of the price would be paid. How many of you ever bought a house? How many of you are required to put a down payment before you bought the house? And you say, why would we do that? Well, if you put a down payment, we call that earnest money, and it guarantees that it's your commitment to fulfill the pledge to buy the property and that you're going to make the rest of the payments on schedule. So a down payment indicates a degree of commitment, a guarantee that I'm going to pay the rest of this property off. Another common example of this is an engagement ring. An engagement ring is a promise of what? It's a promise that at some point in time, the relationship is going to grow into marriage. It's going to progress. There's more to come. The best is yet to be, right? So the Holy Spirit is a pledge of our inheritance. Actually, the Holy Spirit, among other things, is a guarantee that our salvation is going to be consummated in heaven. We live on a sinful planet, and yet God himself has come to live inside us. The Holy Spirit is a promise of our future inheritance. He's actually the first part of our future inheritance. So you could say this, the Holy Spirit is your down payment on heaven. There's more to come, and it's going to be a lot better. But we have a little taste of it, here. Actually, in the church, 
the family of God, we have a little taste of what relationships are like in heaven. Now, we're still sinful people, but God gives us a little taste of what that unconditional love and acceptance will be. Heaven really is the fulfillment of our inheritance. It's the ultimate expression of that. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession, this literally means until the redemption of the walk-around. When you purchase property in ancient cultures and you put a down payment on the property, you know what you did? You walked around the entire periphery of the property. Now, we do that today. When we buy a house, what do we call that? An inspection, right? We have somebody inspect the joint to make sure that, in fact, there's no mold or structural problems. So we inspect what we own before we buy it. Well, in ancient cultures, they bought just plain dirt. They would walk around the property, note the boundary markers, where the water rights were, and all that other kind of stuff. So this walking around demonstrates our rightful claim to the property. God does the same thing with us. God acquired us. God bought us with the blood of his son. Yes? Say yes. He did. And he marks us out and walks around us and claims us by giving us the down payment of the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee that he's going to come again and claim us as his own. Purchase possession. See, when we die, our bodies go into the ground, but our spirits go to be at home with the Lord. At the end of the age, God is going to resurrect our bodies. You'll be a lot, looking a lot better than you are now. All of us. We get a resurrected body. And then body and soul, we're going to spend eternity with Him in heaven. So the Holy Spirit's the down payment, the promise of what is to come. Now in these 11 verses or so, from verses 3 to 14, Paul has given us nine spiritual blessings. Nine that are ours today. The Father elected us, predestined us, and adopted us into His family. The Son, Jesus Christ, by grace, has redeemed us, forgiven us, and revealed to us the knowledge of His will. He's told us what's going to happen in the future. All things are going to come under His authority. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit has sealed us, given us security, and guarantees that our inheritance will be fully realized when we get to heaven. So when Paul says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, it is almost beyond comprehension. We have all of heaven's spiritual blessings available to us right now, and yet, with all we've been given, the best is yet to be. I read a story about an elderly woman who was terminally ill. And her pastor came to help her plan the funeral service. She asked him to come over. And she said, uh, at the end, she said, uh, we've got all the hymns selected, scriptures selected. There's one more thing I want you to do. When I die and I'm in the casket, I want you to put a fork in my right hand. Right here, a fork. And he said, a fork, why is that? She says, well... I've been going to church for decades and decades, and when we go to church socials, we always eat, correct? And my favorite part of any church social is when the people that come by to clean the plates up say, you can keep your fork. 
because that meant that dessert was coming. And it wasn't just jello. It was something substantial like cake or pie. It was going to be good. The best part of the meal was yet to come. You can keep your fork. And she was in the casket a few weeks later and had her fork in her right hand and people filed by before the service and they kept asking the pastor, what's with the fork? Why is she buried with a fork? And he had the privilege of explaining to them, the best is yet to come. We should be living with a fork in our hand. No matter how bad it is today, or no matter how good it is today, you ain't seen nothing yet. Read these blessings. Understand the love of our Father for us, that He has blessed us beyond our understanding. Every one of heaven's spiritual resources are available to us right now, today, and we should be living in light of that. Let's summarize before we do prayer and praise. I'm not sure it's going to be Marty or Tom, but we'll be ready for prayer and praise in a couple of minutes. So summary, number one, our greatest need and God's greatest gift is forgiveness, which became ours when Jesus paid the legal penalty for our crimes by dying in our place. If that isn't love, right? Number two, God's eternal purpose is to unite the entire creation under the authority of King Jesus. We don't see that today. We see the brokenness that comes because King Jesus is not being worshipped. But the day is coming when the entire created order will worship him and come under his authority, and then we are going to see the universe as God designed it to be. Number three, Jesus is our inheritance and our source for everything. There is nothing you need that you cannot get from your relationship with Jesus Christ. He is our great treasure, and we are his inheritance, whom he has chosen to use to fulfill his plan for planet Earth. So you have purpose and meaning, and you have work to do. Get on with it. Talking to me too here. Number four, the indwelling Holy Spirit is proof that we belong to God, and he guarantees that our future inheritance in heaven is secure. Next week, Lord willing, we'll continue in Ephesians. Uh, we're going to struggle here because we only have about 12 weeks to get done with this book. So uh, I'm trying to measure it out, if you will, but this is a book. This is, this is the creme brulee of the New Testament. You ever had creme brulee? It's dense. It's rich. It's calories. Yes. And it's sweet. Yes, you have a fork. I prefer fruit pie, but nonetheless, this book is rich. Read it over and over and over and ask the Holy Spirit to inform you. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.